Well, hello there and a very warm welcome back to Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailists Foundation. Coming up this time... If you want to be a good transcriber, it takes years. We had lists to work to. We have to look for certain things in Duxbury so that the mistakes were got rid of. One blind person's take on being a Braille transcriber. Transcription, for anyone who doesn't already know, is the process of taking content in one format and converting it to another. In this case, print is being converted into Braille, a process ubiquitous in the production of Braille books, magazines, bills, bank statements, legal documents and much more. Humans have been at the heart of this process since its inception and in spite of numerous technological advances, they remain so today. Kawal Gokukoglu, herself blind since birth, was a Braille transcriber at RNIB for over 23 years, and in this episode of Brailcast, she shares some of the highs and lows of this part of her career, as well as what Braille means to her more generally. We discussed the change to unified English Braille, the evolving role of technology, the division of labour within a large organisation, and unique opportunities afforded to her through her Braille-related work. I started, however, as I so often do, by asking her to talk about how she first learnt Braille. Well, um, when I did start to learn Braille at Northwood, which is still open, and I believe it's in Middlesex, I remember one day coming into the classroom and they said to me, you're going to sit down and learn Braille. And I immediately said, what's that? And they said, it's something that you can touch because you can't see. So I said, okay. And somebody else had been doing Braille at the same time. And I heard this bell and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to make that sound. And they said, can you do it A? So I thought, what's A? And they said, dot one. And I said, okay. She goes, I'm going out of the room now to do something. And she said, just do one A. And I thought, no, I'm going to have, have a listen to see what happens when it gets to the end of the line. So I got to the end of the line. And of course, you know, I didn't know how to pull the courage back or, you know, go up one line. So she said to me when she came back in, why did you do that for? I said, well, I wanted to hear the bell. Yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? What different people respond to. Um, I know some people who really enjoyed listening to the sound of the bell. I know others who, uh, a bit like you, w- would there was one person I worked with who drew a line. Uh, they, you know, wrote this this line of A's across the page and went, oh, that makes a dotted line. And then we taught the letter C and, and we did like um, a straight line and then wavy lines with dots one, two, three, four, five, six. And it's amazing the different things um, that, that happen in the Braille learning process to try and get people to engage with Braille. So, I mean, beyond, I guess you learned the letters of the alphabet. Just remind me, was Northwood a... a blind school or a mainstream school with a unit or what was Northwood? Northwood is a blind school and it used to be run by the RNIB, although I didn't know that. And then um, I don't remember the rest of it, you see. I remember learning A's, and but I don't actually remember the process until I got into my next school and a bit more into classes and things. So it's all a blur. And I guess were you, you were blind schooled all the way through, weren't you? So I guess learning Braille wasn't really this great big special thing. You just learnt it as everybody else was learning print, I guess. Well, well, uh, in our class, everybody was learning Braille. There was not many partially sighted people. And so it was just normal for us. 
except when I used to go home every week, my dad used to say to me, you're going to be learning typing because he could type. And I said, what's that then? And he said, I have to press buttons on this machine. I said, well, can I do it? Will you teach me? And he said, no, you wait until you go back to school. And so I remember learning typing at the same time when I was about eight, I think. And I loved that as well. And of course, there was no technology or anything. It was a manual typewriter. Yeah. And how did you find that? Because I found it quite straightforward learning Braille and typing. But there are things like contractions, which were completely normal to me that then I almost kind of had to unlearn when I learned to type. Did you find a similar sort of experience? Was there any confusion there? No, I just knew that if I press one letter, um, you'd have to press more letters to make a word. I didn't think, oh, the sign, T-H-E sign. Well, you know, you've got to press three more letters for that, T-H-E space. So I wasn't confused by it at all. I just enjoyed every single bit of it. The fact that I could press buttons and make letters come out on paper was great. You know, I knew then sighted people can read what I written because I used to say to my dad or someone else, but how will you be able to read it if I write it in Braille? I need to do something that so that you can read what I've written. By the time I learned how to type, we were typing on computers and I could hear the computer echo stuff back to me. So I knew what I'd written. But what fascinates me is the fact that blind people such as yourself were learning how to type and actually had no idea whether what you were typing was correct or not. You just had to assume that, well, I mean, obviously you knew to a certain extent where the letter F was and the letter J was, and you know you knew where the letters were, but you know you wouldn't necessarily know if you'd made a mistake. I mean, how did you deal with those sorts of problems? Oh, I, I, when, when I think I remember having to do some examination for typing, and I remember I was probably in my last year of school, and I said to them, well, look, I've made a mistake, but I, I can't put it right so can you get your tip x and delete it for me please now I remember they had to do that and then I'd say well I'm going to type all that again because I don't want all that mistakes on my piece of work I, I don't want tip x on my work so I'd, I'd just do the whole thing again. No I can relate to that so I guess it's just muscle memory then that tells you that oh well I think I've made a mistake here and you can just sort of call it. Yes. So you've been reading braille you've been touch typing on a manual typewriter and went all the way through school and presumably college and um I think you said you didn't go to university and at some point you ended up as a braille transcriber was that the first job that you had or had you worked in other jobs before you became a braille transcriber I was working for my father as a secretary because when I left college in 88 um I couldn't find work and I said to my dad well I've got to do something. I can't sit at home do, all day doing nothing. And so um, until 1995, I'd been working for his business as he used to have a clothes business. And then the business closed due to recession. And I said to my dad, well, I've got to do something. He said, well, why don't you ring up the job center? I said, all right then. So I rang up the job center and they came to see me. And the DEA said, well, um, you could always go to... Um, Loughborough to do a course and I said well no I don't want to go to Loughborough because I want to come go home every day so they found me a college in London and I went to learn how to word process and do um, I think it was WordPerfect 5.1 and in the middle of all that I was they said you know you could 
work for the RNIB. I said, well, will RNIB take on people like me? Because I thought, well, RNIB to just take on posh people, you know. I didn't think they'd take on a blind person like me. And so then um, after I'd finished, I went to a job club, uh, which was in my local area. And um, they said there was a job going at the RNIB. So I applied and I had an interview and I didn't get it. And then in the course of that journey, I had an interview with my school teacher who was working at the RNIB in the employment part, uh, division. And um, after that, he interviewed me and he said to me, well, you know, at least you've had an experience of what an interview is like, because he wanted to know what had been happening to me, the fact that I hadn't got a job and stuff. And then one day I'd been sitting around doing nothing at home and I got a call out of the blue from a place in London doing um, secretarial work and Braille work for the whole of the RNIB and doing trustee work and they said well we're looking for a braille transcriber because one of our braille transcribers has moved on to another job and um, there were people in the same department who used to go to the college that I used to go to and they said to me that well you know, they said that I could do it because I've been sending in braille application forms because I didn't have a computer at home or anything and they said well do you want to try it and I said yeah okay so I went there for six months. I was temporary and I thought nothing of it. I thought, well, I'll be finished in six months. And then it turned out that I was made permanent because I applied for a job because somebody wanted to do a job share. So their job became available. I applied for the job. Nobody else had applied and I got the job. And I've been there for, what, 10 years there. And then after the 10 year of working for in London and um, working, doing secretarial work at the same time, I end up in Peterborough doing another 13 years of transcription and learning how to put books into Braille. So it sounds like you had some secretarial qualifications, if you like, or some secretarial experience and some, some typing qualifications and things like that. But basically, you'd got into transcription through word of mouth, through somebody said, you know, this person's going to be good at the job, you should apply or you should you should talk to this person. It sounds like you didn't have any specific qualifications in Braille at the point at which you became a transcriber. Have I understood that properly? Yes, you have. I didn't have any Braille qualifications whatsoever. I had RSA, um, secretarial exams, and that was it. So... I mean, this must mean that you've got very little to show for that. Or, or did you have training when you were at RNIB to sort of bring you up to the uh, appropriate standard, if you like? Um, when I was in London, when I first started in London for 10 years, we didn't really have much Braille training. It was, you know, it, we, we did Cypher first, and then we went to Duxbury. And then we did some di digital recording because they thought, uh, there was a transcription centre being set up and they thought we're going to try and do everything like Ivy Bridge did. So they were going to duplicate all that. So we did some digital recording and it wasn't all accessible. But I said to them, look, you know, I want to do some digital recording. They said, yeah, we are, maybe you'll do it. But then things changed there. And then um, they said then, oh, we want to make it the same like Peterborough because Peterborough have got all these braille proficiency and then we we're going to do that but then other things got in the way and there was a restructure or so and they said to me you know if you want to 
carry on at RNIB, then you'd have to locate RNIB or, you know, get made redundant. And I said, well, no, I've decided to locate. So I relocated to the RNIB and they said to me in Peterborough and they said to me, well, you know, you've got all these Braille skills, but because you haven't got any qualifications and we'd like you to do some Braille proficiency. So I did my Braille proficiency, passed that one and got into books and so on. And then about 2014, they said, well, we were all going to UEB. So I had to do that one as well. And so then I got all my UEB qualifications because I've been doing SEB. So there you are. And there were some quite interesting things. I had a look at your CV before we started this interview, and there were some uh, quite specific Braille proficiency things that you ended up with. I think I saw uh, Duxbury contents training, and uh, there were one or two others that I mean, I've I've never seen as somebody who has not worked for the RNIB, I've never seen an opportunity to take these sort of contents training uh exams if you I mean was it an exam or was it just you know something that you you were taught you know how did that work it wasn't an an exam at all what it was we had to start doing books and braille books need contents and so RNIB produced a braillist manual and a british manual and they have a standard of layout and they said you know if I'm going to be get good at doing braille then I have to do contents I have to do layout making sure that the colons are all put in the right places and all the other bits and pieces, commas, and, you know, just general punctuation is put in the right place. Yeah, I've seen the Braillist's Manual. You can actually buy the Braillist's Manual. It's been updated for UEB uh, from the RNIB shop, and uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it's an impressive document. I think my Braille copy of the Braillist's Manual is in something like three volumes, and it's got sort of 50 sections on all sorts of things. Like you say, contents, bibliographies, dedications, um, genealogy, legal documents, hymn books, uh, knitting patterns. And it's quite interesting to me because I, I look at this and I think, yes, this makes sense and this makes sense. And I guess I just got this image of transcribers basically on their first day being given this great big book and told, learn this and come back in a week and you'll be fine. But it sounds like there was actually a much more structured uh, training process to sort of get you up to speed with the Braillist manual sort of one bit at a time. If you want to be a good transcriber, it doesn't take weeks, it takes years. We, I mean, in the end, I, I was remembering things, you know, they, we had lists to work to. We have to look for certain things in Duxbury so that if anything, any mistakes were, were made, the mistakes were got rid of. I know colleagues who said to me, they uh, cited people, you know, who are do, doing Braille, and they said, well, we find this really, really hard. I don't know how you do it. And I said, well, I committed it all to memory because there's no way I was going to keep reading the same old lists every day. I'm thinking, because the brain gets bored if you do repetitive tasks. But I thought, I'm going to try and remember it all. So I did try and remember it all. And I, I got there in the end. The work had to be proofread by cited transcribers because if it was like children books and stuff, it's got to be all correct. And, you know, if children you know, they don't want any Braille mistakes in children's books because they'll be doing it for education purposes as well. Sure, and that they are proofreading your Braille to make sure your Braille's accurate, but I guess they're also proofreading against the print text to make sure that things like 
uh, page numbers come at the right place and picture descriptions, if there are picture descriptions or, you know, things like that. I, I guess they're, they're checking for all of that. The picture descriptions, um, well, you had to transcribe. They used to have a transcriber note in there, you know, because you had to put in text what the picture was for the Braille reader. Yeah. And what was it like when you got things back from a proofreader? You know, I, I guess there was a standard format for the way proofreaders would, would bring stuff back. But I mean, I, I guess there must have been this internal sigh of relief if you only got half a page of corrections. And, and you know, sometimes you get pages and pages and you think, oh, no, I must have had a bad day when that happened. I mean, what was that whole process like, both practically and emotionally? It was really hard because um, some days you, you really have a bad days because you know your piece of work's not good or something's happened and you don't always know especially when you when you're doing it when you're totally blind you know and then you think to yourself well I don't feel good about it you know I want to give up today but tomorrow's another day so you try again and next day you get a really good piece of work especially if you like reading what you're what you've got because I found that I was actually proofreading stuff as well unconsciously because you know, when you do it with speech and stuff, you, you know, you could spot mistakes quicker than the sighted people because who's going to skim through across the pages? And I was reading it from, you know, page one to page end, you know. And so I'd say to them sometimes, oh, well, this there's a mistake in here. Oh, thank you, they'd say. Oh, we didn't spot this. So I felt that I was more accurate than they were at times. Yeah, and I, I guess... You could get to a point where you could guess, couldn't you? I mean, I guess there was a lag between you transcribing a document and the proofreader coming back. And so, I mean, I've certainly had days when I've got to the end of a day and I've thought, yes, I've sent this off to my manager. And I know that in a week's time, this is going to come back, you know, because I know I haven't done a good job of it. But I'm just so tired that I can't do a better job today. And I, I guess there were many days like that in transcription where you sort of you dreaded coming in because you knew that last week's work was going to come back to you. Yeah, especially when you have your reviews and your one-to-ones, you know, these things would come up in anything and it'd make you feel really bad, you know, but you have to have the feedback and you learn from it. Sure. And I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is when you come in knowing that, oh, yes, I'm going to get work back from proofreaders today, but, oh, I was so proud of that piece of work. Um, you know, I really did well with that piece of work and that's, you know, that's quite a lift, I imagine. Yeah, and you go down to your one-to-ones and your reviews and, you know, you get good good feedback back and you think to myself, well, if I can do it today and tomorrow and the next day, good, you know, and it's getting better all the time. And, okay, you only get feedback once in a year or something that something's gone wrong. You know, you, you've improved and you've, you know, you've conquered it. We think, or at least certainly I thought before I really got involved in transcription, that the transcription process is just this, sort of single step process of you get this print book which is in hard copy and it magically appears in braille but it isn't is it you you have it needs to be scanned in and then it needs to be corrected and then it needs to be transcribed and then proofread and embossed and possibly not in that order so as a totally blind transcriber how much of that process were you able to do yourself and how much did you need to sort of ask somebody else to do for you? And and how did that compare to your sighted colleagues? Well, obviously, you're going to work slower than your sighted colleagues because we're depending on speech anyway. But RNIB, once you know, it's been scanned and, you know, somebody's put the whole file in, in some kind of 
Word document or rather, there was a program where it could be put into XML file and you can either turn the XML file into giant print, audio and Braille all at the same time. But what point of that process were you in? So I guess somebody cited would scan the document in and then it would get sent to somebody else to check that it had been scanned in accurately. And then did it come to you to put it into XML or were you the next part of the process? Had it gone through XML and then you had to tidy the Braille version up or did you do both? No, it come into an XML file, but I'd have to put it through that program for me to make that ductory file in order for, let's say, page numbers being put in. You have to check boxes. And you know, and you know, you'd have to press certain boxes for the contents to appear. You know, you can't just put it all in one go. You need to know how that program works. So once you've done that with the contents appearing and stuff, once you open Duxbury, and then you have to tidy up the title pages and making sure that all oh, there was even and odd lines for the. Um, you know, like produced and published by the Royal National Institute of Blind People, or even for the contents, I have to make sure that all the contents had all these leader dots in because you have to do some navigation for those leader dots. If you want to do a knitting pattern, you, you know, you have to put certain codes in the boxes to make sure that the knitting patterns didn't have any of the letter signs. And there were so many processes in order. I mean, I. I I did. I invented some so that I didn't have to do too much with a knitting pattern. And then at the end of all that process, you need to make a DXB file and have a look what number pages of contents came in for you to go and put the page numbers in the um, DXP file. And then you'd have to translate it into the DXB file and do the um, end process to transcribe it into the BRF file. Sure. So you, as a as a blind person, were just doing the Duxbury stage. You weren't doing the scanning stage. You weren't doing the XML stage. It came to you as an XML file, and then you started by tidying up the XML and sending it on its way. And was that the same for sighted transcribers, or were sighted transcribers allowed to do a bit more because they could see the print? They were doing the same thing as me, but the sighted transcribers, especially it was, like I said, for a children's book, they were proofreading against the print, which I couldn't do. Otherwise, the context of what I was doing and they were doing was the same sort of thing, just that they were doing it with their eyes and I was doing it with my hands. So we've talked about uh, the Braillist manual and knitting patterns and things like that and the the amazingly complicated layouts that were involved in things like that. And uh, I mean, we could talk about that all day. But um, I'm interested in some of the other projects that you've done. The one that sticks out in my mind is the fact that you had to do a Braille version of the Quran. And that sounds like a really eclectic piece of work and such a rewarding thing to have done. Perhaps you could tell me a bit more about that project. I was working in London at the time and um, one day we, we had a call and somebody said that we want to get this Quran to be put into Braille so that the people can follow the Arabic and the English together. So they got the people to come in and I was just about to get married at the time. One of them spoke my my mother's tongue language and I said to them well I'd be happy to do it and there's another colleague of mine she was also totally blind and we said to each other you know why shall we not do this so once a week 
um, her, her husband would, and wife team would come in and I'd sit with the husband and, and he had the English um, translation and the Arabic translation all in, this, in different kind of manuals, you know. So I'd say, I'd say to him, well, can you tell me what the English says now? And he'd tell me what the English said. And I said, okay, I'm going to write that into Braille. And it took a whole year just to transcribe all that manual into grade two. And then I say to him, well, um, do you want to make sure, you know, should we just proofread it and stuff and make sure it's all correct? So we did that for the whole year to pass. And then at the end, it was done. And, and then I remember going to the mosque and I sat down there and I had the Braille copy and somebody else had the cited copy. And I actually sat down and read uh, a passage in grade two Braille. And they were really, really pleased. And we had dinner together and everything else. And I think they were really, really happy. It sounds like a really fulfilling project to work on. And it sounds like, you know, it would happen on sort of a Thursday afternoon and you'd look forward to your Thursdays because you, you'd know that that was going to happen. So just to sort of clarify a couple of points, it sounds like you were only transcribing the English version of the Quran. You weren't transcribing the Arabic alongside it. No. So was the, was the Arabic already transcribed or, or were they working with Braille readers who didn't know Arabic Braille and so it was just easier and more pragmatic to do the English version on its own? They didn't want the Arabic transcribed. They wanted it, it alongside the Arabic so that, you know, when they went into the mosque, a blind person could pick up the same thing. It, although it was in English, they knew that the Arabic version that they had would be corresponding with the same thing. And and it sounds like you were literally just taking dictation and and writing it all in. So there was no use of a scanner or anything to kind of speed that process up. No, he was reading it to me. And then sometimes I'd say to him, well, can you tell me what that meaning is for the Quran? Because, you know, everything's got meanings in that. Just saying that the way a Christian Bible does. Yeah, fascinating insight, isn't it, into how another religion operates. And, uh, and yeah, I've also found this, I mean, not on the same level as you, but I've definitely transcribed passages in the past. And I've thought, yes, I never knew that. I've, um, I've learned a lot through doing that. In 1986, I was about 16 at the time, um, my parents said that I was going to go to India and um, learn the culture because they said I had to. So I went there and I remember sitting with the children there and they say to me, how can you write on the Perkins? Because I went to a blind school there to see what it was like. And they said to me, well, we can use styluses, but we can't use Perkins. And I said, well, if you teach me something, and then I can teach you how to use the Perkins. And I remember sitting down and I said, I said, do you have any like children who read the Bible? Because, you know, there was lots of kinds of children there. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, is there anything I can do for you? And they, I remember them sitting with me and I got the English Bible and they would read it to me and I'd put it down on the Perkins. And, and then in the, at the end of all that, they had a Bible with me transcribing it. So they had a Perkins at the Indian Blind School, I guess. They didn't have lots of Perkins. I guess they just had one or two. They had one. and Everybody was doing it so fast with the stylus and I couldn't even do that. Yeah, people will adapt if you give them the tools. And it's really quite impressive that even at that age, you know, you were doing transcription, you know, braille to braille transcription, I guess, essentially. 
with no mistakes. And that's hard. Brailing with no mistakes is really, really difficult. I don't, you know, I, I don't think I could manage it now. Um, so you'd obviously seen a Bible and you'd seen what that looked like and that would have given you some sense of how you thought, if we go back to the Quran, how the Quran should be formatted. Because it's complicated. You've got books, you've got chapters, you've got verses. And I'd have to decide all the headings and stuff. For, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say, you know, should we put the headings like this or should we make a paragraph of this? I said, I'd ask them, you know, what's in your book? You know, is, is, the, is the word centred on the page or is it, you know, to one side? You, you tell me and then I'll try and replicate the same thing on the Duxbury, which I did. So, I mean, you, you basically, it sounds like, just had a free hand to, to do this job. There was no provision in the Braillists manual for how to do this. No, well, we didn't use a Braillist manual in, in London. Right. OK. So we've talked a lot about what your history of transcribing was like, and you've sort of touched on UEB and SEB and the fact that SEB is different to UEB. I mean, what was that whole process like? You 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 know how to transcribe. You're doing really well, and then all of a sudden, somebody says, "Yes, now you've got to learn a different code and a different way of doing things." And some of the provisions that we've had in transcription for, say, transcribers' notes and things that we've had to make up, we now don't have to make up anymore because UEB has standard processes. But how how daunting was that process as a transcriber? Oh, I think I was emotionally wrecked because. I thought, you know, when I saw UEB, I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to read Braille anymore. This is all different. And they said, no, it's not all different. It's just got different signs. And I said, well, I can't do this. And I, I got really frustrated. And then it took me two goes to get over that fact that I would be able to read Braille. And, you know, I said, well, you know, I was very angry at the time. You know, why break Braille when it doesn't need to be fixed and all this stuff? I remember, you know, when they were talking about the capitals, um, coming in before UEB and um, I went I went on in touch and I went on the BBC program and I was saying you know we don't need capitals and you know you I know you need this in education but if you do leisure you know reading for leisure we don't need capitals and why is this happening and oh you know I'd get into a real state about it but now capitals are um you know they're there and I don't care they're great you know it's something that I do now if I'm going to write on my iPhone or whatever, I'm writing in UEB. I cannot remember anything about SEB anymore. And, and how do you feel the, the transcription process is? Do you feel like it's actually easier now that you know how to do it to transcribe in UEB? Are there fewer mistakes that you have to correct in UEB as compared to SEB, for example? Oh, yes, definitely. Because, you know, Duxbury is doing quite a lot of the work. It's only like a few things that you have to be aware of, like the capitals haven't ended in the right place. I remember having to do some training on that. I had to keep doing it a few times, you know, to make sure that I understood why Duxbury was doing so and so, why the capitals hadn't ended, why the, you know, the continuous punctuation had, had been missed, you know. Yeah, and you have to cancel the capitals sometimes and and restart them. And I guess there were things like you had to check because UEB uses more bold signs and italic signs and, and things like that than uh, SEB would have done. I guess you have to check sometimes that a heading has been applied properly so that you haven't got lots of bold signs all over the place. How much of a problem was that sort of thing? Oh, it can be a problem. I mean, if you're going to, especially if you, you know, you've got a heading in bold and 
you know, the bold has been missed or something, you know, because it can be missed in print, but you know you want it correct in Braille. That raises an interesting point, though. You're talking about taking bold out and putting bold in and, and correcting the print, which I have been known to do. To what extent does a transcriber actually correct the print, though? You know, is it appropriate always for the transcriber to correct the print? We want it correctly in Braille, you see, because, okay, it doesn't matter what the print's like, but, you know, if you're going to have a library book and the bold's not missing, then you want to make sure you put the bold in. Otherwise, you know, the children who are going to read the library books or anyone, for instance, they would need to know that that punctuation's in the right place. Yeah, so it is a standard thing that if a transcriber comes across a minor printing mistake, then the, the transcriber is at liberty to correct that printing mistake. And would you itemise them in a note to Braille edition, say, or would you just do it and not even think about it? No, you wouldn't put it in, in because it's not like a picture or anything. You just put it in and then you just make sure that when you go back to the proofreader before you send your work to them, just say, could you check so-and-so? I know that something's missing. Can you make sure that's correct for me? There'll be people on both sides of that debate, I'm sure. And the people on the other side of the debate would say, well, yes, but um, if the print is allowed to be inaccurate, then surely the Braille should rigidly follow the print because otherwise we're giving children an unrealistic expectation of the perfection that is in the sighted world. How would you respond to that comment? Just throwing it out there. Oh, I, I wouldn't like it because I'd want it done properly. You know, I used to say to my fellow transcribers, you know, I want to make sure I'm doing the right things. It doesn't matter what you or anyone else does, but I want to do it because I like to put out good work, you know. And it's amazing, actually, when you really boil down to it, how much editing is involved in a transcriber's job. I mean, moving beyond simple proofreading stuff and, and you know, checking that bold's in the right place and all that sort of stuff. What happened when... For example, there was a table. I guess it was your job to decide whether that table should be brailled in columns or in paragraph mode or whether it should be flipped through 90 degrees or or what. I mean, was that your job to do that or was that the editor's job above you to do that? I can tell you for tables, we had a uh, there was a program. That, uh, I told you about the XML and it actually dealt with tables so that once you'd you know, imported the XML file into Duxbury, the tables were absolutely fine. You didn't have to do too much. You just, you know, got the table and, it, you know, we'd have to put the transcriber's note in it just to tell them how many columns it had. This table has been borrowed in paragraph form and it will tell you what the each title of the columns is so that when you do go down to read your table, it's in correct form. Can you tell the difference between Braille that's been transcribed by a professional and Braille that's been just put through Duxbury and will hope for the best? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially if you get like bank statements, for instance, you know, well, you know, you got to the end of a line and um, web address has fallen off. You know, you know, then that, you know, it's just been put an, for an embosser and nobody knows what they're doing. And sometimes there's lines not right and you get, I, I mean, I've got things through the post before and pages are upside down, long, wrong way round. And you think to myself, who the hell is this, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's, you know, or sometimes, you know, it's got gobbledygook on the bottom of the page. You know, the Braille embossing's gone wrong, but no one knows what's happened. So we've talked about your life as a Braille transcriber. And in just a second, we'll talk about 
where you are now. Before we do that, Braille's taken you on some really interesting journeys apart from transcription, including some really interesting work, I think, with Code Factory and mobile speak and things like that. Could you elaborate on some of that? In 2010, I used to have an HTC phone and I joined a list because I wanted to learn more about the phone. And um, I found a website that had Pocket Speak. They were all going on about Pocket Speak and the, you know, the code factory were the developers and so on. They had a, a group and I joined that group and I found learning mobile speak really easy. So then one day, um, one of the developers got in touch with me because I said, look, you know, I want to talk to somebody about Braille because I said, you know, when, we, when are you going to get Braille support on it? And they said they were, were going to get Braille support on it soon. So I said to them, well, there's something wrong with the Braille support because it's not working correctly on my HTC Touch. And um, I said, you know, is there anything I can do to make sure that the Braille support is going to be good for you? And they said, yeah, why don't you come out to Spain? So I went out to Spain for the whole weekend and they paid for my travel and food and so on. And I went into the offices on a Saturday. I remember this very well. And I sat down with them and we were going through all the processes of, of how the code factory software worked with the mobile speak program. And they could see with me using my Braille display everything was going on with the software and they found out that something had been missed with the program. So they fixed it. And at the end of that weekend, I can tell you, Braille Display and the Code Factory software worked really, really well. That's great. And it just shows where Braille can take you if, you know, if you're good at Braille and you, and you put yourself out there. So things have moved on at RNIB and things have moved on in your life and you're not um, working at RNIB anymore. Um, where's that taken you? Well, um, when I've left RNIB a year ago, I um, thought to myself, what can I do meaningfully? And I kept thinking to, my, to myself, well, I've got all these Braille skills and if I could, you know, do something with my Braille because that's what I know. I don't really want to learn anything else. I decided to look on job boards for um, Braille jobs. And um, I had one interview for a Braille trainer. But in, in that interview, they wanted mobility as well at a special school, which I used to go to. So I didn't get the job. And then um, two weeks ago, I had an email from one of my ex-colleagues. And they said, you know, somebody's looking for a Braille tutor. And I'd done this at the Bank of England, teaching somebody Braille. And I'd never taught anybody Braille before. Transcribing and teaching Braille are two different things. And so um, I got in touch with the person and they were delighted to have me. So I've just started working for this school and um, they've got a VI unit. And I've got all these ideas in my head what I want to happen because these children, some of them have never had much braille support um they're, they're depending on teaching assistants who have to read all the stuff for them and read the computer stuff for them well i don't think it's fair they should have the same you know things that i had when i was at school so i really want to help people now you know with children 
to learn braille and get their examinations and have all their materials independently without having to wait for someone to read things to them. Yeah, that sounds very laudable. And it sounds like there's a hybrid sort of approach that's starting to emerge where you'll maybe do half a day's teaching and then a day or two's transcribing and then um, a bit more teaching and then a bit more transcribing. So what does the future of Braille look like for you? And if we can expand that a little bit, what's the pandemic done to change the landscape of Braille, either you know for the better or for the worse, but hopefully for the better? I'm hoping that the world will be a better place, that there'll be more opportunities for blind people and that, you know, that blind people are recognised for what they can give rather than, you know, what money they can make. You know what I mean? So, I mean, with regards to Braille, I'm hoping that people will want to learn Braille a lot more because they've been sitting at home and not doing very much and then, you know, they've had time to think and reflect people who say that Braille is not useful to them will think otherwise because then they can, you know, go to all these restaurants and cinemas and you name it, and then can have a Braille menu in front of them. And they, you know, they don't have to listen to their iPhone or whatever else they use. They can have the information in front of them. You know, I just hope that the world will be more inclusive for everybody. Kawal Gukukoglu, optimistically looking towards the future of Braille and bringing to a close this episode of Braillecast. The Braillist's Manual, which was talked about earlier on, can be purchased from RNIB in either print or Braille, and further information can be found in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Braillecast, the official podcast of the Braillist's Foundation. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Braillecast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice. Or listening to Braillecast, connecting the dots for Braillists everywhere on your smart speaker. You can also find past episodes on our website at braillecast.com. If you have comments on the podcast or suggestions of topics or guests for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braillists.org. You can also find the Braillists on Twitter at Braillists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. New listeners are always welcome. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.